Thanks, Kim. And um, I enjoyed singing with you guys just a, a minute ago. It's, um, you know, the point of, one of the, like, the reason that we gather and sing, well, the Bible actually commands us to. So uh, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3 says something like this, addressing one another and songs and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, right? And so, um, brother, you did a great job leading us. And it was like, I don't care about the music. I, I care about that we sing. So um, I don't think anyone's going to come here because we have cool, hip music. Um, no offense. Like, but, but so like, um, and if they come for that, we don't really want people to come for just for that, right? No, no smoke machines here and, and all that stuff. And we believe that if God, and this is why I encourage you, it's a couple of housekeeping things. This is going to dovetail into what I'm about to say. I hope most of you take advantage advantage of the opportunity next week to come here, yes, at 8.30 in the morning, but to think about how does God's sovereignty work in salvation? So, so like, uh, many people have opinions about that, and very few people have actually investigated it. Okay? Well, I think it works this way. Well, how? Why? Don't, don't waste this opportunity. It is such a great... You guys are so fortunate as a church. You have no idea Honestly, like you, you, God has been so kind to this little church on this island of Australia, on this little bit of it called the Central Coast in Wyoming. So take advantage of this. Like there's very few churches that are actually going to like say, hey, let's actually workshop these things. Let's think about God's sovereignty and salvation. In fact, I can't think of really one church on the coast that would actually do this. And, and, it's, and we're not going to have these equipped classes until Jesus returns, so, like, just take advantage of this. Dan does such a good job. Like, I'm, I'm good at just, just you know, giving you a, a good whatever. But, like, you know, as, as you can, in love, right? But, like, but Dan, does, like, he is such a good teacher. And, he, and, he, and he, does, he puts so much time. It's not like he just wakes up in the morning, oh, what should I talk about at Equip today? Like, he does a, if anyone's ever gone, you can testify that it's, it's a helpful, safe environment to workshop things, to think, to push back, to, that's the whole reason that we want to grow as Christians in this, in this area. And so can I just encourage you, for those of you that have, in fact, who, just show of hands, who has been to the equip class? Okay, so Jenny, yeah, you guys, Rob, you've been, yep. Can you, so, hold on, sorry, sorry guys, I embarrassed you. Keep your hands up. Can you, if you're, if you're sitting around those people that have their hands up, talk to them afterwards. Seriously, like, just so you'd be like, so is it worth it? Like, uh, Kim, Kim goes, and I know, Kim, you've, you've gained a lot. You've grown a lot from that. So um, if you go, I won't embarrass you, like I just did Kim, but, um, right? So, but, yeah, um, that's one housekeeping thing. The other housekeeping thing, Peter just reminded me, he brought me back a book that I let him borrow. It's called Dulos, but written by John, oh, no, wait, it's Slave. Dulos is Slave, anyway. Um, written by John MacArthur. Great book. Um, if you, can I ask, uh, a friend of mine came into my office this week and he was like, oh, where's this book and where's that book? And I was like, I think I lent that out. I don't remember who I lent that out to. Um, I've intentionally tried to lend out a lot of my books because you guys are very low resourced here. You just, you just are. It's not an insult. It's just, you just are. You're just like, oh, where's the book? It doesn't, you have to order it and it's going to take eight weeks and it costs 80 bucks. And that's just part of living out here. But so I have... I have broken a carnal rule that I never do. I never, I said to myself when I graduated seminary, I'm never going to lend my books out. But I just didn't think I'd be in a place where you didn't have access to it. So all that to say is, if, if I have lent you out a book, can, can you please bring, try to just kind of, maybe even just notate it in your phone, bring Rob's book back? Because there's like holes in my library now. I'm okay with that. But like, it's, I, you know, I, I was trying to reference it to one of my friends, and I was like, where's my book? Oh, my gosh. I, I lent out that Jonathan Edwards book. Are you kidding me? Actually, you have it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, so, and, uh, so I lent that book out to, Jan and, and, um, to Peter, and Peter brought it back, and he brought me a fresh minted extra book. So if you want to bring me a book as a thanks <laughs> on top of it, anything written by Banner of Truth. Anything written by Banner of Truth. No. But I'm kidding. So anyway, if you do have your Bibles, um, let's, let's get into it here. Turn to 
2 Kings, 2 Kings, because I want to show you something. And as you're turning there, I want you, um, in 2 Kings 14, I want you to try to use your imagination. Let's just pretend, I know that no one in here has a yarmulke or tassels or, or anything like that, but let's just pretend, let's try to use our imaginations, let's pretend that we are Israelites. And, and, as, and as an Israelite, um, you take pride in your ethnicity um, and 2 Kings 14. That's in the Old Testament, 2 Kings 14. I'll turn there as well with you guys, okay? Just not, so make sure we're all there. 2 Kings, 2 Kings 14. Here we go. It's on page 349 in my Bible. Yeah, yeah, whatever you got in yours. So, um, so everyone with me now? You all there? You all there? Good. All right. Try to use your imagination. Let's pretend that you're an Israelite, right? There's probably no one in here, but let's just pretend. Right? And you take pride in your ethnicity and, and your calling. I mean, you're God's chosen people after all. And, you know, you love going to a big bonfire, you know, at nighttime when you can see, if you've ever gone out to the bush, you can see the stars really well, right? And you're out there with a bunch of other Israelites, and then as you're sitting around this campfire, someone brings up this name. There's a lot of murmurings going on, and someone brings up the name Jeroboam. And immediately you're wondering, ooh, Jeroboam. Which Jeroboam? Because there was two Jeroboams. One was a Jeroboam that actually divided up the nation of Israel, divided up the kingdom. But there's also another Jeroboam. So as you're sitting there around the campfire, one man stands up, he goes, I want to talk about Jeroboam. And he's trying to push away because the campfire smoke's blowing towards him and he's trying to push it away with his hand. And, and he goes, I'm not talking about the one that divided up the kingdom. Goes, okay, good. I'm talking about another man that came about 100 years later in the 8th century. This king, Jeroboam, led our nation to prosperity and, and weakened those dreaded enemies. And this guy is quite theatrical. He's like a grandpa, and he goes, and he looks at all the kids, and he goes, the Assyrians. And then, then the kids go, oh, and they hide under these blankets. And the moms go, it's okay, it's okay. They're not around anymore. And he goes, yes, the Assyrians. That's right, during that time, Jeroboam, he led our nation to prosperity. He expanded our territories. And, and as that was happening, there was a prophet. Yeah, a prophet from God predicted that Jeroboam, this king, would actually bring our nation back to the good old days like King Solomon. And this prophet predicted he, that all of that would happen during this time. 2 Kings 14, look what it says. Talking about this Jeroboam, he restored the border of Israel from Label Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant who? Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who is from Gath Helper. Now, all the Israelites in this campfire would have known, we know this guy, Jonah. We've heard this story before. How many of you, out of a show of hands, have heard about Jonah before? Yeah, probably most of us, right? Uh, people usually think, oh, that's that cute children's story about the, the bloke that got swallowed by a fish. Or, yeah, that's, that's the, big, the big fish, after all. I mean, is, isn't that what the, kind of the whole thing's about? Well, believe it or not, uh, Jonah is actually all about God. Uh, you see, it's more than a story about a prophet who ran away from God. It's the story of the grace of God that overcomes Jonah's stubborn rebellion. See, Jonah's actually not the hero in this story. God is the hero. Because God pursues this rebel named Jonah. And not only Jonah as a rebel, but really, I think, 
we too are rebels because by our nature, we are actually not seekers of God. Do you know that? Romans 3 says no one seeks for God. By nature, we are fugitives, rebels. And even if you're a Christian here this morning, that propensity to flee from God didn't end at your conversion. You want to continue to flee. We feel that tug in ourselves. To, to, to God says this, and we say, no, we're not going to do it. And yet, even in our stubborn disobedience, God still pursues us in His grace. So, friend, let me tell you this up front. When it comes to the book of Jonah, you can run like Jonah, but you can't hide. So what happens, though? What happens when we say no to God? When we have a heart of disobedience that chooses sin? What should we expect when we say no to God? That's what I want to explore this morning. What are some of the things that we can expect when we say no to God? You might find there's quite an overlap and a parallel between actually what it means to follow Jesus and to heed his call and what God is calling Jonah to do. So that's where we're headed. We're going to look at this idea of Jonah's stubborn rebellion and yet God's relentless pursuit of this rebel in his grace. And as we move along the text here in this narrative, which is a beautiful story, we're going to, at the same time, though, hopefully catch this vision of, well, what happens then? What What are something that you can expect to happen in your life to us, maybe a lesser degree or not, when you decide to say, not to God. No. All right? I'm good? Hope it's encouraging. Let's, let's pray as we, uh, as we dive into it here. Father, I pray that as our Bibles are opened, you would be our teacher this morning. Lord, we do not have the ability to understand or apply what is taught about, your divine, about any of this, Lord, but so we need your divine enabling. So please, Holy Spirit, Put aside our distractions. May we hear from you this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Is this thing too high? Should I lower it? Because it feels... No? It's all right? Yeah? Yes? Yeah. In 2 Kings? Was it 1 Kings? Oh. I just expect you guys to have it memorized. So, um, no, I'm kidding. Sorry, First Kings. So, second, it's Second Kings, fourteen, twenty-five. Did you guys all get there eventually? Okay, great. I'll talk to you about it after the channel stuff. Okay, cool. Great. All right. But so here's what I want to do though. Before we um, unpack, sort of. This, this story, let's, let's pull back and get some context on Jonah, all right? So before we sort of just jump into the, the flow of the story, let's, let's think about um, who this is, why it was written, you know, is this, I mean, is this really history? I mean, come on, people, a dude swallowed, what is this, Pinocchio? Like, people don't be swallowed by, you know, where's Geppetto? I mean, people, is this is just a fable? Is this a parable? Is this really history? How can we think about the book of Jonah? So let me start by this. What kind of book, what kind of genre is the book of Jonah? Because we have different genres in the Bible. You have law and prophecy and epistle and poetry and, and narrative. And, and Jonah could be really summed up and broken down into uh, what is called historical narrative. Historical narrative. And, and that means at least according to Jesus, this actually happened. Because Jesus says, just as Jonah, right, was in the belly of a fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man. And he actually relates it to his death and resurrection. But so what I aspire to do, so this is a historical narrative, so I'm going to give you my, I'm going to give you my presupposition. Remember, I've used those fancy terms before. I'm going to tell you, I, I really think this actually happened. Um, 
But at the same time, I don't want to just give you a bunch of historical information. I really want this to be Christocentric, meaning since Jesus is the focal point of all salvation, and because we read our Bibles backwards in light of the cross, I think it's imperative that we interpret Jonah through a historical lens, but keeping the spotlight on the hero, the main character, the Lord himself. So what else could we say about the book? Well, it's compressed into what's called, some people call it a minor prophet. Now, why is it a minor prophet? It doesn't mean it's not valuable. It's just the volume. It's the size. So like, for instance, the book of Isaiah has 66 chapters, right? Take you a major long time, right? If you wanted to read the book where Jonah has just four. So it's the size of it. It's not the value, it's the size. Um, who's the author? Not quite sure. I mean, the book makes no direct claim who wrote it. Some people think it was Jonah because of the firsthand accounts and experiences, right? It's not like someone was with him going, you know, in the, in the fish with him. But Jonah's referred to in the third person as well. So not quite sure. Could have been Jonah. That's not a salvation issue. Um, can you take the book literally? Like I said, in terms of historical, well, yeah, according to Jesus, yes. Jesus said in Luke 11 and other places. Now, here's the deal. I want us to jump in to Jonah now. So well, let's get out of Kings. We can come back to Jonah. And I want us to see what the very, the very first thing, what's the very, who has the first and the last word in this? Because the, the way that you begin a story, like if I said any story, once upon a time, that makes it a fairy tale, but once upon a time, there was a king, okay? Now we know that there's a king. Well, the king has to have a kingdom, right? So, and the king had his, you know, his queen, and da-da-da-da-da. So, like, I'm immediately, the first few, what comes out of my mouth as I'm telling the story, I'm setting the rig up, right? And so, notice how this book begins. It says, now the word of the Lord. That's the opening line. God has the first and the last word in this book, and that's important. Now, the word of the Lord came to this guy, Jonah. Can you see that? Now, we don't know what that meant. We're not sure if that's a vision, a dream, a voice, but the, the point is, is that God has the first and the last word, and he's, he's talking to this guy named Jonah, which his, his name means dove, and Jonah would have been, remember, during the time of King Jeroboam, even I gave you the wrong address for it or didn't give you the right verse or whatever. But the, the, he's, he's a prophet during the time of Jeroboam. And that means he would have been in kind of the northern part of Israel, some, somewhere near Nazareth. But look at what God says. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah. There's Dove or the, this prophet man, the son of Amittai saying, Arise. Now, Depending on your translation, it actually may not say that. I think it's actually an important word because it's arresting Jonah in the midst of his life and commanding him, arise. It's actually the same thing that the captain says to him, which we'll talk about that in a minute. Get up, arise, O sleeper. Now, what does he say? Get up, go there. Well, who gave God, and, and what did he say? Go to Nineveh, Right? and preach against it. Tell them to repent. Well, who gave God that authority? And why would God be allowed to commission someone to go in a city and, and demand repentance? Well, because he's the judge of all the earth. But why Nineveh? I mean, like, if you think of the, if, if God's the judge of the whole earth and the Lord sees it all, why this great city, Nineveh? Well, similar to the days of the flood, at least leading up to the flood, um, when God looked on the earth and saw that it was corrupt, in the same way Nineveh has become so sinful that the holy justice of God needs to act upon it. Look what it says. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has, notice, come up before me. Yeah, this is a place that is filled with violence and 
wickedness. It's become so prevalent, it's like burnt toast in a house. You just smell it everywhere. In fact, kids, listen to what another prophet had to say about Nineveh. Listen to these images in the book of Nahum, chapter 3. Listen to what he says. See if you can hear how violent this city would have been. He's talking about Nineveh, this prophet Nahum, and he says, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no wind to the prey, the crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies, and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. Can you hear how violent they were? Is it any wonder to you in the book of Jonah here, in chapter 3, verse 8, when Jonah finally does come, what does the king of Nineveh say? He says, let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hands. That gives us an indicator of what kind of city this was. Now, notice it's also, it's interesting, do you notice how he says that it's a great city? Go to that great city. Uh, this would have been one of the great sort of wonders of the world during that time. It's about 900 Ks, give or take, northeast of Israel. So, I mean, this was a city that was quite affluent, big and, and growing. You know, Forbes probably would have had it in its, you know, top 10 growing cities, Nineveh. And while it was growing economically, it was sinking morally because they are wicked. And Jonah knows that. That's why he doesn't want to bother with it. Look at verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Now, where is that? Probably southern Spain. Okay, think about, I don't have a map up here, so you're going to have to use, use your thinking caps here. And where is Nineveh? 900 Ks northeast of Israel, modern-day Iraq. You with me? Spain? Iraq. Totally different on the map. And so Jonah goes, I'm not going that way. I'm going this way. Jonah is trying to go as far west as he possibly can. And here's what's interesting. Why? It's silly, actually. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. I mean, that's, that's just, how is that even possible? Well, it's not. He's going to talk about that in chapter 2. But let's just, for, let's just for argument's sake, could it be that Jonah maybe, like, he just he, he wasn't paying attention in his classroom when they were talking geography, and he was like, go to Nineveh, and he's like, oh, okay, right, right, right. The other way, man, oh, don't, you know, is, it, is that what's going, no, 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 no. He, he knew exactly what he was doing. The message was, it came with clarity, right? Arise, go to Nineveh. And it came with a, a very specific task, and call out against it. You see, Jonah didn't misunderstand what was going on, you know, it's been said that our problem in obeying the Lord is not that we do not understand what he is saying, but that we actually do. Yeah, it's not that we, not we didn't mishear God. No, we, we, we read and we know exactly what it is. You know, God's word is living and active, right? It's sharp than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrows. Like a microscopic uh, penetration it, it, it can hit us at, at, at the hardest level, and we go, no thanks. That's too much. I'm out of here. Now, just as we're still getting our hands around this book here, why, why did Jonah, like, 
hold on. I don't want to spoil the book too much. I mean, most of us know it, but why, why did he do this? Like, why did he, why did he just split and go the other direction? Well, I mean, it's quite simple. He, he knew the character of God, and he hated the Ninevites. Honestly, it's just that simple. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful. Oh, this is just, what a terrible God. Lord, it was just like you to do something like this. I, I knew it. I, I knew this would happen. Now, very easy for us to kind of say, you are a rat bag, and he is. But keep in mind, Keep in mind that Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Remember the Assyrians made the kids hide behind the blankets? So hold on a tick. If this guy, Jonah knows this, he can sort of run this through in his mind. He goes on this mission, tells them to repent, and God saves and spares them. How do you think he's going to be treated when he goes back to his own people? Jonah, he's like Billy Graham of us. No, it's there's the traitor. God should have been taking the Assyrians down, especially Nineveh. This should this is the Las Vegas of Assyria, and and yet you've gone there, and instead of God like destroying them because they're a total nuisance to us, now they're actually more fortified and they're prosperous because God's blessed them. Like Jonah, you. You're, you are the ultimate turncoat. You know what's interesting too? This is the only Old Testament passage that I'm aware of where a prophet is actually sent to pagans and heathens and people. Prophets were sent to who? They were sent to their own Jews. And, and it, was an, it was unusual for a prophet to be called upon to leave their own people and go to a pagan nation. And they'd also like, oftentimes, that's why we have these recordings in Jeremiah and Isaiah, like we'd actually, they're, they're writing these letters, right? Like, or they're, they're giving announcements and they're preaching all those things, but, but they're, they're to their own covenant people. They're not to go outside of Israel to these people that don't know their right hand from their left and, and actually say like, you need to repent. So, like, in Jonah's mind, this was, like, this is, you know, unprecedented, right? And they're the enemy. And so, uh, think about it this way. Because, again, I think what's really easy to sort of go, ah, tisk tisk, Jonah, you know, what are you doing? Lest we forget, in the New Testament, we all love Peter, right? When Peter is called to the Gentiles, what does he say? Uh-uh. I'm not going to those pigs. And God has to say, I'm calling you to them. You know, Acts 11 lets down the food and he goes, I'm, I'm not eating anything unclean. That's Peter, who spent three years with Jesus, who has the Holy Spirit. <laughs> like, come on. And so, like, we look at Jonah and we kind of, ah, tis, tis, Jonah. But this is so unique. Again, I'm not, I'm not giving the guy a pass, but I'm trying to put ourselves in his shoes for a bit. Now, I want you to catch, I did this with Samuel. When you read narratives in the Bible, catch certain words that are repeated and, and catch the image that's, because that's the way that a lot of Old Testament is written. Look what I mean here. Arise, go to Nineveh. Uh, he, you know, he, their wickedness come up. But notice, notice the images that come here. Um, but Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Notice, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with the Tarshish. You, you, catch, the, you catch what's going on there? He's, he's here and his morally speaking, spiritually speaking, things are just going down the gurgler. He's going down, down, down. Notice there too in verse 5, 
that Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship. Things are just going downhill for him spiritually. You ever wonder, right before he paid the fare, what was sort of rattling around in his head? I mean, we just, this is all we have. We don't have his thoughts at this stage, but I wonder, you know, was he, was he, was he running? Did he just grab the first captain and kind of shake him and say, get me on the, get me on the ship? What was going on in his mind? There's a, a, a helpful commentary that I've read by a guy named Sinclair Ferguson, who's a Scottish pastor and theologian. I love the way he gives us a, a picture of what was potentially going on in Jonah's head. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson writes this. He says, We can picture this little prophet, breathless, counting out the coins for his ill-fated Mediterranean cruise. The adrenaline flowing as at last the ship weighs anchor and the port of Joppa disappears over the horizon. We can see him going below deck as the stars sparkle in the sky. He rolls over on his mat that night, exhausted with nervous tension, yet perhaps with an overwhelming sense of relief that the great decision has been taken. He has paid the fare. Perhaps it took his life savings, but his last thought before sleep is, it was worth it. It was worth it. You know, maybe Jonah thinks at that stage, God's going to call someone else. See, the fact is, friend, when someone wants to run away from the Lord, Satan will always provide the transportation. And Jonah thinks, I'm off the hook. God's going to call another prophet. He can run, but he can't hide. Because look at verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. Amazing language here. This is not just coincidence. Like, oh man, didn't you look at the weather on your phone? Couldn't you see there was a big storm on the horizon? It's not chance. It's not, it's not random. This storm is actually providential. I love the language there. Do you see the language hurled? That's the exact same language we get in 1 Samuel 18, 11. Do you remember when we went through 1 Samuel? David's sitting there playing the harp. Bring, trying to calm Saul down. Bring, bring. And then Saul's like, stinking David. And hurls a, a spear at him. David just goes, you know. You guys remember that? Same language. God is the one who hurled the storm. That's scary. What should you expect when you disobey God? Expect a storm. Expect a storm in your life. Expect you to be, to some level, and again, I don't know what that is, disciplined for it. Expect you to be disciplined. If you're really one of God's kids, he will discipline you. Let me show you what I mean. Turn to, go to the right in Hebrews chapter 12. Look how God, look at this principle, how God disciplines his kids. Have you ever been at the shops and you see a feral kid and they go, ah, and they're not listening to their mom? No! Right? And, and I, I see that more often than I'd like, but, but I, I see that. And you know what? I, when I see a kid like that, I know it goes to my mind. Look, pal, I know exactly what you need, and I'm just the guy to give it to you, too. Now, if I did that, which I wish the mom would allow me to, but if I did that, I would, I would, be, I would be arrested <laughs> because I'm not supposed to swat someone else's kid. They're not my kid, okay? God doesn't spank the devil's kids. He spanks his own. So if you're being disciplined, take it as you're not an illegitimate child, that you're actually a real child. So look at Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, verse 5. 
And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you? Notice, as sons, as children, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when he reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he what? Loves, right? And he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Interesting passage. So tempted to go on a rabbit trail, but I will refrain. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, no rabbit trail, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but latter, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What a great passage that is. What a great reminder if you feel like, man, everyone else is getting away with murder, and I feel like I try to do one little sin and I cop it on the chin. You're God's kid. The, and if, if you're getting away with it, you should be a bit suspect that you actually are. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 through 12, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. What should you expect when you say no to God? Expect a storm in your life, whatever that might be. Now, come back to Jonah, because there's a funny, at least the way I read it is funny, You've got this, I feel like, a bit of personification happening here. Because if you come back to Jonah, I love the language. So the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, Jonah chapter 1, verse 4, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. If you don't get me out of this storm, ship speaking, I am out, I'm going to just, I'm going to break up. In fact, one could say that the ship is about to become a nervous wreck. No. Oh, the, the, you got it, good. The mariner, that's what happens when you become a dad. The mariners, though, who are used to storms, they're used to storms. And, and it's, it's telling that they're, they're freaking out. Right? Like If this was just like, oh, yeah, 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 we've, we've, we've done this. No, no, they're going, we are going to die. This, this is not a, just any unusual storm here. Look at, again here, verse 6. So the captain came and said to him, no, sorry, let's come to that. Then the, verse 5, then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. So they're freaking out, right? They're petrified. Oddly, there's one bloke who's just having a nice nap, who's totally impervious to the storm. And the captain, interesting language, you almost wonder if Jonah maybe is having a nightmare. Remember, arise, arise. He sort of, that's reverberating in his head. Arise, echoing in his head. Arise, arise, go to Nineveh. And then, you know when someone wakes you up and you can just in the last bit of your dream, you can sort of hear like, you know, when someone wakes you up, like, Ross, R Ross. It was always nice like that, right, Juanita? Yeah. Rossy, you know, or whatever, you know. You know, and, and, and then you sort of, and then, and then you wake up, get up! Yeah, no, no, but, and then you sort of, but do you know what I mean? Just at the end of your dream, you can, so you can hear audibly, you can hear the, someone's voice saying, wake up, wake up, and then, but you almost wonder if you hear, arise, 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 if you're Jonah, and it's, you're getting having a nightmare because that's what God said. And it's the captain going, we're going to die. Do something, man. Wake up, you sleeper, you bum. I mean, look, and then call out to your God. I mean, perhaps the God will give a thought to us so that we may not perish. So like, what do we do? Well, let's just, let's, 
cast lots. Let's figure out whose fault this is, even though we kind of know, know who it is. But let's, let's just confirm who this is. And they start peppering Jonah with these questions. Who are you from? What is going on? He doesn't even answer their questions until the end of verse 9. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. Even the, It's interesting, even these pagan sailors have some... Oh, they have some, I guess, inkling that this storm isn't just random. Right? It's not just like, oh, bit unlucky. No, no, no. They actually are like, this storm is providential. So we need to figure out who's at fault here and deal with it. So they cast lots. The lots falls on Jonah. And they go, dude, tell us who the heck you are and why this is happening to us. Then they said to him, tell us on whose evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? And he said to them, I, I love this, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, notice, who made the sea and the dry land. I mean, I would be so, so cheesed at this point. It's like, so you mean to tell me the God who split the Red Sea, we've heard about that with you Israelites, the God who's sovereign over this sea, he's the one. He's the one doing this? Well, if you're one of his people, we don't want to kill you, so come on, boys, we we got this, we got this, let's start rowing, and that's exactly what they do. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? He told them, right? Right? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them so. But isn't it interesting? And I want us to capture a principle here. Who is in danger? Well, it's Jonah, but it's not just Jonah. All of these blokes are going to go down here in a ball of flames or in the storm or whatever. And friend, when you say no to God, You should expect a storm, but you should also to expect to put other people in danger by your own sin. I mean, think of King David. King David, as we know, man after God's own heart, but as the kingdom was built up, he saw another lady, grabbed her to be his wife, and thought that he, you know, got away with it. And then the prophet, Nathan, comes to him and says this in 2 Samuel 12. Why have you despised the word of... He's talking to David. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah, so he's a murderer as well, the Hittite, with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And now, therefore, and listen to this. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and have taken a wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, David, and I will make your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. You understand, when we choose deliberately to say no to God, it has ripple effects for our families. It can have a ripple effect for your wife, for your husband, for your kids, for your job, for your coworkers, for your city. Really. Disobedience is never just simply a private matter. It has ripple effects. So what should he have done? I mean, he's putting these guys in danger. He should have said, I'm the problem. I've just told you that God is the one who made the sea. He's sovereign over it. Turn this whole Mediterranean cruise around right now and take me back home. But he would rather die and go down with the ship than do that. So, verse 11, Then they said to him, What shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. 
Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you guys. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish with this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. It's an incredible account. Jonah says, I, I know it's my fault. Pick me up, chuck me overboard. They're like, we're not doing that. What, was, what would God do to us? He goes, it's my fault, chuck me overboard. They try to fight it, they can't. They said, all right, ready? One, two. I doubt it was that calm. Remember, there was a big storm happening. <clears throat> and just as he predicted, they chuck him overboard and the storm is gone. But all, as all that's happening, though, Jonah's life hangs in the balance. He's sinking to the bottom of the sea. Notice what he says in chapter 2, verse 5. The roots of the mountains, I went down to the land. Sorry, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. This guy thinks, he's, I'm done. You know, I disobeyed God. I'm getting what I deserve. And just when he thinks it's all over, gulp. He gets swallowed up by a fish. And we're going to talk more about that next week. The fish. Again, the fish is not the focus of the story. But the fish is God's grace. I mean, if I was God, I'd been like, throw that dude overboard. In fact, throw a lightning bolt at him on the, as, you know, kick him like... No, but he provides grace. He provides a fish. So what should you expect when you disobey God? You should expect a storm, dear friend, and expect to put others in danger, but expect a fish. Expect a fish. I don't mean that literally. But I mean, expect God to be gracious and to give you opportunities to repent. But you know what? In that season, dear friend, when you're in a fish, it's going to be dark, Scary and smelly. Jonah's fish is a sign of God's grace. And his time in the fish provided him the right context to learn something about God and about himself. I mean, just think about it this. If Jonah is in the fish and he, and he cries out to God, we're going to look at this next week, what he, how, what he prays from inside the fish, but as he's sitting in the fish, if he says, nah, I'm not having it. I ain't going to Nineveh. I don't care what you say. Do you think the fish still would have vomited him out onto dry land? Maybe. But maybe the fish just would have slowly digested the little guy and we'd have no book of Jonah. <laughs> but in the midst of our disobedience, the Lord is still gracious. He is still gracious in giving us opportunity and time to repent. So what should you expect? You should expect a storm, expect to put others in danger, expect a fish, and guess what? Expect the same assignment. You know, what a, what a scene this is. We'll get into this in the next few weeks, but we know the story. The fish vomits Jonah onto dry land. You caught a picture of the guy bit shaken, no doubt, has a shower. Whew. Oh my gosh, I just can't believe that really happened, right? Oh, I'm so glad that's over. Jonah, go to Nineveh. You know, the Lord is never going to learn to walk in obedience to you. You are called to learn to walk in obedience to him and his ways. He's never going to alter his will. He's never going to change things to adapt to you. He's never going to just say, oh, is this all right? He is always going to call you to follow him and your job is to obey. And so is mine. When we say no and just say, I'm going to do it my way, you know, you're, you're, you and I, we're booking a ticket for Tarshish. Every day though, every day we're doing this. 
When we say no, we are running away from God. That's what sin is. Fleeing from God. The only way back is God pursuing us, not our pursuit of Him. Jonah reminds Christians of the extent to which God pursues us in our rebellion and changes our hearts to honor Him and to serve Him so that, like Jonah, we can say, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to God and give all glory to Him. Because the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. He sent another prophet many years later who never disobeyed, but lived perfectly, but was treated with contempt, was mocked, spat on, crucified, and was in the heart of the earth three days and three nights, as it were, like Jonah. But this prophet, again, never sinned, lived perfectly in your place if you trust in him and turn from your sin. You know, it's interesting, with the book of Jonah, there are some societies that have a pretty weak justice system. And I think we begin to project that onto God. There are some parents who are fair or are really daryl at disciplining their kids. And we can begin to think that God treats us that way. But do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever someone reaps, that's what they will sow. You can turn to Christ and have your sins blotted out. You can be forgiven. He is your only hope as you sink. Turn to Christ, look to him, and be forgiven and saved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful book and the practical contemporary lessons that we learn from it. We ask that you would continue to be gracious and merciful to us, that we would be able to learn to sing as Jonah did, salvation belongs to the Lord. May that be our theme in our hearts and in our lives, and may that be reinforced by your spirit, we ask, as we discuss these things in growth groups and together as a church family. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm excited, friends.